Well, as always, we thank our musical team for their ministry to us in, in the worship of music. Now let's worship the Lord in the study of his word. Uh, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll be looking at primarily at verses 6 through 9 this morning in this wonderful text of scripture. There's an old fable of uh, three people on horses, three men on horses going through a desert. They run into a stranger. The stranger uh, tells them to go to this uh, empty, uh, dry riverbed. And as they cross the riverbed to pick up rocks and sand and put it in their pockets and put it in their, their saddlebags. And when they reach their, reach their designation later in the day, uh, they will be both happy and sad for what they had done. And so when they went through uh, the, the riverbed, they picked up some rocks and so forth. And not, not too awful many, but they picked up some and uh, put them in their saddlebags and pockets and went on to where they were going to stay the night. At, that night, they went into the bags and looked at what they had. And the rocks had, had uh, morphed into diamonds and rubies. And so just as the stranger had said, they were both happy and sad. They were happy that these rocks had become uh, rubies and diamonds. They were tragically sad because they didn't pick up more. I think that is a, a pretty good metaphor where Paul's going today with the area of wisdom. Uh, we are, as we think about wisdom, the wisdom of God that we find in our passage of Scripture today, uh, we will look back on our lives as we travel through as Christians. We'll look back on our lives with afterthought, and we will, uh, many of us will say, why didn't I pay more attention to the wisdom of God? If, if only I had lived out the wisdom of God that was available to me in his word, uh, then I wouldn't have had to go through those hard times and those problems and those tragedies that hit me in the way they did. Others will be able to look back and say, because I did pay attention to the wisdom of God in, in many areas of life, I was able to avoid the pitfalls and the, and the traps and the snares that could have derailed me and destroyed me. Uh, both happy and sad as we look back at that. Paul has uh, been talking about wisdom. And uh, at first glance, as we, what we've read so far in chapter 1, in particular a little bit of chapter 2, it would be, seem almost as if Paul is anti-wisdom as if he's against wisdom. And so he wants to nuance that. He wants to make uh, clarity, with great clarity, what he actually means. He's not anti-education. He's not against thinking. He's not against intellect. He's not against knowledge by any means. But uh, he is saying that uh, there's a certain kind of knowledge that distracts us from the things of God, that takes us away from the truths of living for him and eternal life. And there's a kind of wisdom that takes us the opposite direction in the following of him. He says, I don't have much interest in that wisdom that has is, that is engulfed the world, that worldview, those philosophies that most people live by. I have very little interest in that. I don't even want to interact with that too much. But my interest and my desire is to go after that which is, is wisdom indeed, the pure, unadulterated wisdom of God that tells us how to live life and how to know him as our Savior and how to have eternal life with him. And so as he talks to the Corinthians, he's quite concerned about that because they're enamored with the wisdom of the world. They're enamored with the philosophies, the worldviews, the, the trendy uh, fads that are going through uh, their world at this time. And they're, they're, they're gobbling those up. They're, they're listening to those things. And those things are diluting the wisdom of God in such a way that they were not living very well according to the wisdom of God. And their lifestyle and the sins that we'll be looking at in the months to come in this book are a testament to that. Had they paid attention to the wisdom of God, they wouldn't be going through all these things. 
but because they had not paid attention and had embraced the world system's understanding of life, they were facing unbelievable difficulties and problems and sins as a result of that. So basically, by, in, by embracing this world religion around them, uh, these philosophies and worldviews that are, do not come from God, basically by doing that, it, they had become blind to the beautiful truths of God and the sweetness and the insights of the Lord that he had for them. Uh, you may have noticed, uh, if you've, any of you have gone somewhere in the last few years to uh, some of the uh, beautiful parks and uh, beautiful scenery of our, of our world, uh, you may have noticed what I've noticed for several years now. Uh, as I'm going through the Rocky Mountains, or maybe you, li you like the beaches, or, or these types of beautiful sceneries that you can go to that God has created for us, as, as you do that, I've noticed so often how many people in recent years, especially younger people, are not looking at the scenery. They're looking at their cell phone. They're walking through the what is unbelievably beautiful, incredible creation of God, and they're more interested in being distracted by the silliness of whatever's on their cell phones. And I find that amazing and terribly sad, but something far sadder is being talked about by Paul here. He is saying that so many people are distracted by the philosophies, the ideas, the worldview of the world that they do not see the beauty and the loveliness and the graciousness of God himself. What a, what a terrible trade-off. But here's some good news. We don't want to be negative here. Uh, here's some good news. The good news is that these insights that the Lord wants to give us that he calls the wisdom of God is available to every one of you who know Jesus Christ as your Savior. So let's dig into this. Let's begin to see what he has to say. He has some wisdom for those he calls mature. Look at, uh, at verse 6. Yet we do, not, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. And so he is saying, I have a wisdom here for you that are mature. What we want to understand is what is he saying? What does he mean by that? And what kind of wisdom is it? So let's dig in and find out. Well, first of all, God's wisdom is for a special people. It's not for everybody. It's for a special people. We read verse 6. Let's move on a little further. Yeah, we do, not, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. I want us to note uh, three features of the wisdom that is available for us as God's people. First of all, it's uniqueness. It's uniqueness. This wisdom is distinct from the wisdom that the Corinthians were gravitating toward. It's distinct from the wisdom that the world pops out all the time in many, many, many forms. It's totally distinct. Uh, and he's always quiet, quietly rebuking them for trading in the wisdom of God for the wisdom of the world. He's rebuking them in a very kind way, I think, but he's rebuking them as well. If this morning on Mother's Day we're making an offering, we're offering something. For those that want a brand new slinky, uh, you can come up here on my left side and we'll give you a slinky. For those who would like to have a brand new BMW, you can come up here on my right side. Now, if we were making that offer, and I want to make very clear we're not, uh, if we were making that offer today, how many people do you think I'd have lined up on the left side? No adults, because they know the value, but I probably could have some two-year-olds. I bet there'd be some two or three-year-olds who'd say, man, I'd love to have a slinky. I hear the, the favorite of girls and boys. Remember that old jingle? I, I'd love to have that slinky. Who cares about a BMW? What am I going to do with that? That shows the immaturity 
of a child who doesn't see the value of certain things. And that is kind of what he's going after here with these people. This is a, a unique wisdom that the Lord offers to his people. Now, secondly, look at the source here. His wisdom is for a special people. But look at the source. He says in, in verse 6, However, not, it's wisdom not of this age, or, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So uh, let's take this very literal, folks. This wisdom that God wants to offer cannot be found through human sources. It cannot be found through self-help books. It cannot be found through the latest pop whatever. It cannot be found in philosophy, sociology, psychology, uh, whatever you want to run after. It cannot be found in world religions. It can only be found from one source, and that is God. It's His wisdom. The world doesn't understand it. The world doesn't appreciate it. The world doesn't want it. uh, But you and I can have it. And so its source comes from him. Now, thirdly, the recipients, who gets this kind of wisdom? Who who has the opportunity to have it? Only a certain kind of people. Here's a hint. Go back to 118. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, Here's the hint. There's a kind of person who can live out, appreciate, and live the wisdom of God, and that is the person described as the one being saved by the power of God. And they're the only ones who can have that. So they are the recipients. So that's the overview. Let's look at a few details as we look at this. First of all, Paul is not anti-wisdom. He loved to talk about wisdom, but he wanted to talk about a particular kind of wisdom, the wisdom that flows from God, the wisdom that is pure, the wisdom that has no flaws, the wisdom that is perfect, it's God's wisdom. He wants to talk about that. That's what he's after. And he says his wisdom is unlike any other kind of wisdom that anyone has ever had, and it's only for one kind of person, one class of person. He calls them the mature. So we need to understand, who is this mature person we're talking about? The word means complete or completely grown, full-grown, complete, Uh, Sometimes translated even perfect, but it doesn't mean perfect in the sense of flawless. But it does mean a person who's complete. So are you mature? Let me ask you that question. It's still ringling, ringing through your ears what mother used to tell you. Remember, this is Mother's Day. What mother used to tell you, grow up. You know, act your age. So if that's ringing through your head right now, you might question your maturity. So what kind of maturity is he talking about in this passage of Scripture? Well, there's two views. If this wisdom is for a certain class of people and they're the mature, uh, you have to see whether or not you fit that class, right? So let's talk about it. There's two options. This could be a picture of all believers. Everyone who knows Jesus Christ would be that person, would be the person that would be complete in this sense. Only the believers can do that. Verse 18, again, 118, says uh, that the, the, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but not to us who are being saved by the power of God. And so that would seem to imply that all believers have this understanding of the power of God or can have it, while the world sees it all as foolishness. The second option is this is for a mature believer, a Christian who has really progressed in the things of God, in contrast to the fleshly, worldly, baby Christians that he wants to talk about in chapter 3. So look at chapter 3 for a second. Look at the first three verses He is going to get to some very uh, baby-like Christians. And he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ, baby Christians. 
I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you're not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. Then he goes on to tell him why he says that. So there's baby Christians here. So possibly he's talking, uh, he's saying there's a, there's a class of Christians at Corinth that were more mature and they could receive the wisdom of God, but not this particular group of baby Christians. Go back to Hebrews chapter 5 for a second. That, this this uh, helps us also to understand a few things. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5 is talking to a different group of Christians. Probably many a couple decades later, they were mostly Jewish believers. But uh, he says something similar to them at the end of verse 11, or at verse 11, chapter 5. Uh, he's talking about a guy named Melchizedek. Okay? And he said, I, I got a lot to say about him. Verse, verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say. It's hard to explain to you since we have become dull of hearing. So he's gonna, he's gonna, he wants to talk about Melchizedek, but he doesn't know if he can because they're so dull in their spiritual maturity, their hearing. Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature. Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So he's contrasting two kinds of people here, isn't he? Those who have progressed on with the Lord and grown up who are mature, who are ready to handle some heavier things of the, of the Lord that they need to understand, and, grew, and a group of people that aren't ready for it. And in this case, he's talking about Melchizedek and all that means. What I've always found interesting in the book of Hebrews, after he says this to him, he goes on and teaches two or three chapters about Melchizedek anyway. So he wasn't expecting them, this is very important as we're going to chapter 3, he's not expecting them to stay baby Christians. If they're baby now, don't stay that way. And he's going to press on with the truth. So let's go back to our passage and let's see which of these two options fit the text best. Are we talking about all Christians who would fit the category of mature and capable of understanding the wisdom of God? Or are we talking about a, very, a subset of Christians who are, who are more mature in their faith, grown up in the things of God? Uh, which is it? I believe that the context best fits the first. I, I believe every Christian has this wisdom available to them. I, I believe that because uh, every Christian, it says in, in the last verse of this chapter, 16, he says, you have the mind of Christ. Now, we'll talk about what that means later, but that means you have the capacity to think like Christ. Can you imagine that? You have the mind of Christ. So I think that's the case here. Also, I think of Colossians 2.10. I won't turn there, but Colossians 2.10, you can look up later, talking to the Colossians about very much similar stuff in that chapter. They had been really enamored by Greek philosophy and wisdom. And he says concerning them in 2.10, you have been made complete. The, basically the same idea of completeness. So it, even though they had been uh, distracted by those things, they had been made complete. They were mature in that sense. So when we go back to our passage here, this word mature does not mean, I believe, uh, a certain level of spirituality that you must reach before you understand the wisdom of God. I believe he's talking here about the fact that all Christians have been made complete in Christ. 
And as a result of that, you have the mind of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and you are able to understand the wisdom of God that he's talking about here. But at the same time, even as I say that, that doesn't mean that you are going to understand it very well if you haven't grown in the things of God. And the more you know, the more you mature, the more you're walking with the Lord, the more these things become precious to you, the more you embrace them, the more you comprehend them, and therefore Paul is going to press on with these people, telling them that they need to appropriate it. So they had it, get the point? They had the capacity for the wisdom of God, it was for them, but not everybody was appropriating that wisdom very well, as we see in the book. You know, when we're living like the world and thinking like the world, we don't have a whole lot of time to enjoy the things of Christ. And we are a distracted people. A few years ago, I was asked to speak at a, to some missionaries and at some churches in New Zealand. Well, that was a hard task. I, I hate things like that. Uh, so Marsha and I went to New Zealand. Marsha doesn't go with me when I go to Kansas very often, but New Zealand was pretty interesting to her. So we, we went to New Zealand. And uh, in New Zealand, uh, uh, one of, well, they, they, their, their commerce there is pretty much dependent on tourism. Got a lot of tourism there. And one of, the, one of their uh, advertisements, the way they promote New Zealand, as compared to Australia, because a lot of people who haven't ever been over places like that think, you know, New Zealand and Australia side by side, they're almost identical. They're many hundreds and maybe thousands of miles apart. And they're very different. And one of the ways they promote themselves, New Zealand does compared to Australia, is that in, in New Zealand there is absolutely nothing that can kill you, except for people. There's no, there's no poison snakes, no poison spiders, no predators of any kind. Did you know that? There's not a thing. On their advertisement they say in Australia there's literally a hundred things that will kill you. And they're everywhere. And so I looked that up a little later on. I found out there's at least a dozen things in the ocean where people swim that can kill you at any given moment. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me a little nervous of us swimming out there in the ocean. Uh, ever since that shark show, what was the name of that thing? Uh, Sharky, what is it? Jaws, yeah, Jaws. Ever since, I mean, that really emptied the beaches for a while, Right? And the old saying goes, it's really hard to enjoy the swim when you're up to your neck in alligators. And that's where a lot of us are. We're so overwhelmed with life, so overwhelmed with the, with the philosophies and the worldviews that surround us that uh, we don't hate, take much time often to enjoy and appreciate and, and live out and love uh, the beauties and the wonders of the wisdom of God because it's found only in one place, in the Word of God. How much time are we spending in the Word of God? Now, I'm not going to pick on cell phones anymore, but one more time. What if, what if you spend as much time this week in the Word that you spend on your cell phone? I read yesterday that, that most people go to their cell phones 200 times a day. That's the average. 200 times a day. What if you spend as much time in the Word this week? Just, just map it out. Just kind of keep track of it as you do on the cell phone, you know what's going to happen? You're going to start appreciating the wisdom of God and, and, the, and the contrast between the wisdom of God and everything else you hear around you on television, uh, on the radio, and, and on the internet, on your phones, wherever else you're going. What a contrast. 
Okay, so we have seen then that this wisdom is for a special people, and if you're a Christian, you're in that category, all right? Secondly, God's wisdom has a special purpose, uh, going back to verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, a hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they'd understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. His wisdom has a special purpose here. Once again, you're never going to find his wisdom in a self-help manual. You're not going to find that wisdom from life coaches. You're not going to find that wisdom in, in the secular thinking of life. Paul gives us three thoughts, though, about this wisdom. First of all, it's mysterious. He calls it a wisdom, God's wisdom in a mystery. The word mystery means secret. And as probably most of you know by now, it is, the mysteries of the New Testament are those things hidden from the believers until this age, the church age. Things that former generations did not know that have now been revealed to us in the New Testament scriptures. That's a, a mystery. And maybe Paul used this word here. I mean, there's, there's several, maybe a dozen or more mysteries in the New Testament. It's a fascinating study. We've done it before. But uh, maybe he used this word mystery here because it does mean secret. And who doesn't want to hear a secret? Maybe it catches their attention a little bit by saying God has some secret here for you at this point in time, a mystery that he has for you. Uh, when I was a little boy, uh, we had a neighbor down the street named Audrey. And Audrey was a sweet Christian lady, friend of my mother. She came over quite often. And they would talk. I would ignore them. Who cares what they said? I mean, after all, they were 30-some years old. They were ancient. Who, they surely didn't have much to offer me, you know. So I, I ignored them. But Audrey had this interesting way of talking. When she, when she had something juicy to tell my mother, she got her voice like this. And she turned my mother aside, and she said, That drew me like a magnet. I don't think I even walked. I think I just glided over more than once, she grabbed my head, as Audrey did, turned me around and sent me away. Said, go away, it's not for you. I killed me. This had to be good stuff. This was a secret. And usually it was just something very, very minor. But just the way she said it. Okay, here's a secret. And Paul's catching our attention here. Here is a wisdom in a, in a mystery, in a secret. A hidden wisdom which God predestined for are the ages to our glory. Wow. A system of truth and understanding for our glory. Now, he's saying in verse 7, there's something here God had planned long ago that wasn't truly and fully revealed until now. Now, we know the gospel was in the Old Testament, this isn't, and the coming of Christ was in the prophesied in the Old Testament. So it wasn't totally uh, mysterious in that sense, but the full ramifications of it, full understanding of it, could not be known until Christ came. I want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, or chapter 1, for just one moment with me. Look at this. This talks about the same thing. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Paul says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, 
not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So from all eternity. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Yes, there was ramifications, there was pieces of the gospel in the Old Testament, but it was, it was basically dusk compared to the great light that the Lord shows us. In essence, the Lord turned on the floodlights to show us the full ramifications of why he had come and who he was and what he had brought. And what did, what did he bring? Life and immortality to light. Now notice there carefully, he doesn't say that he brought these things. Life and immortality has always been planned by God. He is saying they've been brought to light so that we understand them now, we can see them now, we can embrace them now in ways that we didn't understand before. If the lights have been turned on, sometimes when I'm walking around here at night or early, early in the morning and I come into this worship center, it is pitch dark. You can't hardly see a thing. And then I push a one little button over there and all the lights in the house come on in here. And I can see. Without the lights on, I can trip over things. I can fall down. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know my direction. But with the lights, when they come on, all at once, I see. And I know where I'm going and I can navigate. By the way, Jim, we need a light like that for the whole church. Just one button. Bam! You know, but uh, that might be tough to do. But uh, anyway, that's another story. Anyway, uh, the light enables us to navigate, to understand. Without that light, we stumble through life. So that's what Christ has come to give. Not only eternal life, yes, he's giving that, but life now. That's his wisdom. Let's go back to our passage. 1st thought, it's mysterious. Secondly, this wisdom, is, its purpose is our glory. The end of verse 7 is very interesting. He says, a hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Now those of you that know their Bible pretty well, know that the Bible's always talking about the glory of God. That everything we do in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, is for the glory of God. The, uh, the, everything that's been created is for the glory of God. The cross of Calvary was for the glory of God. On and on throughout Scripture, it was for the glory of God. And then we come to a verse like this, and he says, look, uh, he predestined us before the ages to our, our glory. How do we get in on the glory of God? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? By the way, if you're struggling with that word glory, substitute the word splendor. That might help you. Think about something that is splendorous, something that is absolutely gorgeous. The splendor of God, the benefits of salvation. How do we get this glory, this splendor? Only by being united with Christ. If we are in Christ, we share it to some extent in some way, with the very glory of God. It was predestined that we would, those of us that know Him. We get in on that glory because we're now in Him. We are in His family. A little girl might grow up pretending to be a princess, and she has a princess dress, and she has princess dolls, but she's not a princess. She's just pretending. But if she was born into a royal family, she's part of the royal family. You and I are not pretending. We're part of the royal family of God if we know him. And therefore we've been predestined all this.
to our glory. Here's a third thought. It's unknowable to the, to the natural mind. Verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now here's the thing, we've been looking at this on, on Wednesday night going through the book of Matthew. Jesus Christ came right in the open, didn't he? He didn't hide himself. His full glory wasn't seen, but his, his person was. His, his signs were given, his miracles, his word that nobody else talked like him, nobody else spoke with the authority of him. Uh, his life, which was perfect, was lived out before these people. His offer of, of the kingdom was, was there, and yet the people, what happened? Verse 8, they crucified him. He was right out in the open, the prince of glory, and they killed him. Why would they do that? Because as verse 18, as we've already seen, they, they see him as foolish. They see his message as foolish, and they do not want it. They can't see it. They can't see it. It's not known by the natural mind, no matter how smart you might be. Marshall and I have been watching some silly sci-fi show in which an alien from outer space comes to earth, takes on the form of a man, walks around. Nobody knows that he's, a, he's an alien except two people. Two people who could actually see that he was an alien. Everybody else thought he was a man. That's a strange little picture of what we got here. The world does not see Christ in his glory. But those who know him do. Through natural thinking, natural understanding, we cannot know him. Matter of fact, he's offensive to them. And they scrap his wisdom. God's wisdom is for a special people. God's wisdom is for as a special purpose. Finally, verse 9, God's wisdom contains a special message. Look at verse 9 with me. Very, very well-known and beloved verse of Scripture. But just as it is written, things which eye had not seen and ear not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. This verse unpacks what it means by glory in verse 7. He, when he speaks of uh, us being predestined to glory, this is what this verse is talking about. We're not given, I want you to note this, this is a general teaching. He's not giving us particulars here. He's not telling us what he's talking about, or some, uh, but he's saying this, things which I have never seen, I just catch the, the flavor of this, things which the ear has never heard, things which have never even entered your heart or your imagination, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Doesn't that give you a thrill? Doesn't that just warm your heart that God has prepared things for you you can't even imagine? That you never, never even came into your mind what he has for you. When we think about what heaven is like, uh, the reason why we don't have a whole lot of pictures is I don't think we could understand it. It's beyond our imagination, beyond our thinking. And yet when we look at this verse, and this verse is often preached at funerals, in which uh, we're, we're saying that so-and-so who passed away is now enjoying the first stages of eternal life in heaven, and this, is, this verse is used to show that what they're seeing, what they're experiencing in heaven, is so far beyond anything that we can imagine, that it's just glorious. And that gives us, that gives us comfort and joy, doesn't it? But, as true as that is, and it's true, verse 9 is not talking about heaven. Verse 9 is not talking about life later. Verse 9 is talking about life now. If you want to be shown that, look at verse 10. For God 
For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. It doesn't say he's going to reveal them in the future. It doesn't say he is revealing them. They have been revealed. They have been revealed. All these things he says in verse 9 that you could never think of, that you could never imagine, that, that never came into your ear or your eye, all these things have been revealed now. You get it? You understand it? Where has it been revealed? In the scriptures. In the word of God. Not in man's philosophies. Not in the world views. Not in the, the uh, courses at the university. In the word of God. So that the average Christian, every Christian, can as simple as they can be, as educated as they might be, as uneducated as they might be, can glory in things that no one in the past could even imagine. Who could imagine that you're in Christ? Who could imagine that the Holy Spirit lives in you? <laughs> and I could go on for about a half an hour here. Who could imagine such a thing? And yet it has been re revealed to us in the Word of God. That's His wisdom. So why do many Christians not enjoy the true blessings of the Christian life? As Warren Wiersbe says, because like the Corinthians, many have lost the wonder of the greatness of God's plan for them. Now, this passage of scripture is reminding us of the wonder of God's plan for us. What he has planned for us now. And so when we leave here today and we go out and we, we face the everyday circumstances of life, we need to focus back. We need to zero back and say, wait a minute. The Lord has prepared for me now things I have never could have imagined, never could have dreamed of, never heard before, all for me now. I need to know what those are, and I need to know how to live them. I was reading for my own study this week, going through the book of Genesis, and I came across the very well-worn, very well-known story of Esau and Jacob. Remember, Esau was out on a hunt, and he came back in from hunting animals, and, and uh, Jacob was cooking up a stew of some sort. All we know is red. We don't know what it was. I like to think it's chili. So he, he's out. So Esau's out there, uh, he, and he comes in, and he's famished. Remember the story? He's absolutely he's starved. He thinks literally he's starved to death. That if he doesn't eat now, he is going to die. And Jacob said, sure, I got chili here. All you got to do is give me your birthright. Now the birthright meant that, that Esau, who had the birthright of being the oldest son, he would, be, uh, he would be the clan leader. When dad passed on, he would be the clan leader. He would, be, he would have two-thirds of everything. He would could, rule everything in the family. And Jacob said, you know what? I'll give you a bowl of this chili I even throw some crackers in. If you just give me your birthright. And I always, don't you, whenever you read that story, don't you just shake your head. Don't do it, Esau. How stupid are you? You know, go to McDonald's, get a hamburger or something. Do anything. Don't give away your birthright for a bowl of chili. And yet we sit right there and read that he did it. And scripture said he despised his birthright. And uh, what a picture what a literal picture of how many Christians have, are despising their birthright the privileges of verse 9 that are ours to live in a way that no one has ever lived before to understand things that no one has ever understood before to be drawn into the wisdom of God himself to our glory and his glory
And yet how many people don't embrace that? Well, that's a tragic exchange, is it not? But Paul's not writing to shame them so much as he is to draw them. He wants them to know they do not have to live in foolishness. They do not have to live without the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God, my friend, is available for you. And you, and you, and you. If you know Christ. Grab it. Learn it. Live it. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture that talks about your wonderful wisdom. Father, may we all desire to more deeply not only comprehend it, but to live it. May this day be a day that it draws us to that as we've looked at your scriptures. For we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.